Hello, Plastic Pills listeners. Matt and I are continuing our investigation of the rightward turn in American politics. This time we bring you a conversation with rising conservative star Nate Hockman. Nate Hockman is an ISI fellow at National Review Magazine, Robert Novak Fellow at the Fund for American Studies, and a former fellow at the Claremont Institute. In our conversation, we discussed his conservative critique of academic freedom, conservative views of truth, and what is common to the American New Right. Please enjoy this conversation with Nate Hockman. All right. Well, I'm just going to say, uh, yeah. So, so, uh, Nate Hawkman, welcome to plastic pills again. And, um, I guess I'll just start by, I'm curious cause I don't know you, uh, as, as well as Matt does, like, how did you come to sort of conservative thought, conservative disposition? Was this something you discovered, um, like through your adolescence into your like early adulthood, or was this kind of like already in your in your cultural family background, uh, maybe related to religion, not related to religion, just kind of curious about like how that attitude towards the world and politics came to you. Right. So uh, I am from Portland, Oregon, uh, that bastion <laughs> of right wing thoughts, just to give you a yeah. sense of my cultural background. It was not something uh, that I grew up around. In fact, I don't think I really knew very many, if any, Republicans um, growing up. I think I remember sort of thinking that they were those scary, bad people uh, who <laughs> won the election in 2004 and my parents were very upset about it. It was, you know, one of my first memories actually. Uh, but towards the end of high school and the beginning of college, I think I began to feel very alienated from uh, the kind of elite, well-educated, progressive circles uh, that I was raised in. I went to a pretty nice, well-to-do uh, high school in Portland, Oregon, um, which had a very similar sort of cultural disposition and worldview to a lot of college campuses. And then I went to a liberal arts college that had a very similar worldview. And I became, I mean, at first I was just alienated from the fact that everyone thought the same way, right? So it wasn't actually an ideological first principles disagreement. I still thought of myself as broadly liberal, uh, but it was more just a sense that if everyone is agreeing all the time, there's probably something missing. Or at the very least, I'm interested in sort of hearing uh, the people who disagree. So I started seeking out other arguments. And then as you engage with other arguments, I had one conservative professor who took me under his wing and I started reading actual conservative thought. They started to make more and more sense to me. And that's sort of what pushed me rightwards. But I think like a lot of young people who move right, uh, the impetus was just a sense that there was something missing in the conversation in these uh, echo chambers. And I'm sure for folks who move left and grew up in very conservative backgrounds, there's a very similar sort of impetus. So it's not unique. And it's, I don't even think it's necessarily uh, something that is, 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 a, is indicative of any inherent defects on the left. I think this is just uh, inherent in sort of the defects of growing up in any political monoculture. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, yeah, it's interesting to hear, to hear you say that. I mean, uh, in some ways, I think as someone on the left, I felt like I've been observing the way the culture has been shifting and like all these things like, you know, wokeness. I always I was always scared of wokeness when I was observing it, when I was doing uh, one of my master's degrees. I did, too. But anyway, that's a whole other story. So and I just noticed in the university the way that these it was it was I felt like it was I was worried it was alienating young people and it was going to push people rightward. So like I feel I wonder I feel like you're almost like the case study of that happening or like potentially a case study of that happening. So. Was that like an influence? Right. I mean, I, yeah. I know many, many, particularly young men, uh, but not by any means exclusively young white men. Um, uh, it is it is something that seems particularly potent with men. Um, the there is a there is a broad sense, even if they're not particularly political, and certainly they don't think of themselves as right wing or conservative. There's a broad sort of disdain for campus elite progressive pieties. And I remember, you know, it's very striking uh, on college, on my college campus, a lot of young men who were not very political uh, and again, didn't think of themselves as right wing, uh, you get them behind closed doors and everyone was kind of like, oh yeah, that stuff is ridiculous, right? <laughs> and again, again, and not, not, this is not actually something that, that was unique to white, white men on my campus. It was sort of, you know, I was friends with the, the, the friend group I was in was pretty racially diverse, but they, all of the guys were sort of, miffed at uh, the campus culture, and particularly the, the guys who were coming from working class backgrounds, where this was all completely foreign to them. Yeah, right? yeah. Like I came from a pretty, you know, well to do 
pretty woke Portland background. So I kind of was aware of the language and, you know, how, how you sort of talk on college campuses. But for the kids who are on scholarships, who are from, you know, working class backgrounds, either, you know, hockey scholarships from Canada or, you know, from the middle of the country, this was insane to them. But everyone kind of figured out pretty quickly that you weren't allowed to say that publicly, right? Right. So it was yeah. something that they say behind closed doors, but there's a sort of wink, wink, nod, nod, like, well, regardless of what your politics are, this is the kind of silly, totally. Right? And I do think that there tends to be a kind of silent, uh, silent majority on university campuses that like, you know, even people who stay left, they will kind of privately be like, you know, this lunacy, I just don't, it's not worth saying anything because I don't want to get like yelled at, but this is crazy. But then it makes it seem, and actually I will say this is where I think some conservatives are a little bit wrong about college, like, or they over-exaggerate college campuses. They make it seem like everyone actually agrees, but it's really just the loud voices that dominate. But the majority is actually just like, this is crazy. I'm just not going to say anything. The fact that they're scared to say something is obviously a problem, but it's not like the university is like a majority. But I did want to just quickly mention one other thing. If I'm not mistaken, you went to Colorado College, which I think, I mean, I'm doing my PhD at University of Toronto. I believe, is there not a professor there who went to University of Toronto who, uh, who is like a Straussian or something like that? Um, you know, they're 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 very well made. In political science, been. I thought um, there was. In political science, I think there's only one real Straussian, and he did not go to University of, of Toronto, but maybe oh, someone okay. passed through. Um, okay, maybe. maybe actually, anyway, even, I wasn't he, sure. even even my conservative professor wasn't a Straussian. He was. Uh, oh, okay. He liked to say, you know, the Straussians. The Strauss said uh, he wasn't a liberal Democrat, but he was a friend of liberal democracy. Uh, my professor right. liked to say he's not a Straussian, but he's a friend of Straussians. Right. OK. OK, cool. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of related to an article you wrote uh, on free speech on university campuses, right, which is where I wanted to kind of move the discussion more into that kind of definitive dimensions of your politics. Because in this article, you say a lot of things that I happen to agree with. Right. Uh, I do actually think that there should be more ideological diversity on campus and that should be celebrated. I do think that progressives should read more conservative texts. Obviously, you know, I've taken that that upon myself. Right. But uh, one of the things that I think I disagree with in your article of course, is this argument that you put forward following somebody like William Buckley, that the point of pedagogy and the point of education should be to inculcate people in the right value systems and the right truth systems. Uh, and in your case, you think that associates with conservative worldview, which I obviously deeply disagree with. And the kind of way that I would, well, before, before we get into like the question I have about the merits of that, can you explain why it is that you take this position first? Sure. So I guess I would contest the premise a little bit because I don't think William F. Buckley, who I was citing, was arguing for a sort of explicitly politically conservative college campus. But if you get to the end of the essay, I actually argue that there's a lot of problems with that. Right. And also his idea of the way that you do this is by basically letting the trustees and the donors make all decisions is, you know, uh, that's not how you, a liberal education is supposed to work, right? And I actually have the sort of vaguely anti-capitalist <laughs> critique at the end that might appeal to some leftists um, by saying, you know, truth is not a good that can be traded on the marketplace, right? Uh, so I, I, I mean, that book on Man at Yale was written when Buckley was my age. Um, and, it, you know, there, you can sort of tell it was written <laughs> by someone who has not fully thought through his ideas yet. Uh, but his critique of academic freedom, as it was sort of deployed at the time, I thought was what was compelling. I think, and the argument that I was trying to forward uh, in in the in the essay that you're citing, is not that we should have a politically conservative orthodoxy on college campuses, but just that we should have an orthodoxy, and that, that it's basically a fantasy at all to say that there can be an absence of orthodoxy. Right? I'm contesting the idea. That there is such a thing as a completely neutral marketplace of ideas, which, by the way, as I as I, I cite some critical race theorists um, in, in in that essay somewhat favorably, because I think actually in some ways that traditionalist critique of the sort of value neutrals liberalism crosses over with some some modern leftist critiques of, of that idea. So it's not you know I'm sure my vision of what a well ordered college campus would look like might. Certainly, would have some elements that I think would be distasteful to folks on the left, and might cross over with goals of political conservatives. But I'm actually not interested in the idea of a politically conservative campus. I think that, like the idea of a college campus, sort of being uh, uh, structured in a way that is specifically ideological, you've already lost. Right? Liberal education is, to a certain extent, supposed to be beyond the reach of activist politics. 
So it's not quite that I think it's it's a it's a I want a conservative orthodoxy on campus. I just want a recognition of the fact that a truth exists, which we can I'm sure get into, and b that actually uh, professors do have an obligation to teach the truth. And one of the an academic freedom is a really important sort of intermediate tool because in order to reach the truth, this is somewhere where I think Mill is right mostly. You actually do have to examine a wide range of ideas and debate and have ideological diversity. So I'm not discounting those things. I'm just saying that uh, those are not an end unto themselves. There actually is an end to liberal education, and that's truth, beauty, you know, goodness, wisdom. Yeah, I mean that's very fair. Um, but my my question is again, I think that. Almost anyone who's put some real thought into this would agree with the fact that you're never going to have something that's entirely ideologically neutral, right? You can even talk to consider uh, like liberals who have thought through their position and they'd probably agree with that. Somebody like Rawls, right? We talk about you know, the kind of reasonable limits of discourse, right? Uh, the question then becomes, of course, what balance can we achieve uh, in terms of the different materials that we presented to students or the different things that'll be emphasized on campus. And of course, that's where the ideological problems come in because it's all well and good to say, well, there's no ideological neutrality, so we need to choose what standpoint we're gonna get into. But then of course, who gets to choose and what the power dynamics of that are are really complicated. Uh, so let's take something like the CRT debates that are going on right now uh, and have occupied a lot of political oxygen in the United States. Would you think that there's a place for teaching something like critical race theory on college campuses, as long as it was counterbalanced with other kinds of materials that were critical of the critical race tradition. Yeah, I think you know this is uh, this sounds like a slippery answer, but I actually think that this sort of the the you have to think of these things in, in nuanced ways. Let's put it this way: you know, could you teach Charles Murray as long as Derek Bell is next to Charles Murray? Right. Again, like I I, I think, and this was I, I had a couple paragraphs about this in the piece, like thinking of it strictly in terms of like a perfect ideological balance to me it doesn't isn't the best way to think about it. It is to a certain extent context dependent. I think critical race theory certainly can be a voice in the academy and it's worth talking about, particularly since it's some of those ideas are quite influential in our culture. I think it would be robbing students of an important, you know, learning experience to engage with those ideas and to understand them. But when that worldview has captured entire humanities departments uh, and is sort of presented in many ways as the only worldview on college campuses, that to me is a problem. And that's where questions of what is true actually come into the discussion. Because, you know, from my opinion, and this is probably like an ideological point to a certain extent where left and right might disagree, critical race theory is wrong fundamentally. Its epistemology is wrong. Its history is wrong. Uh, its, its, its view of the human person is wrong. And it is essentially, at least, you know, the college campus that I went to and college campus that a lot of my friends went to, both on the left and the right, entire departments basically have accepted those premises as the correct ones and teach from that standpoint. And I think that's wrong. And I think the only framework from which that you can actually substantively explain why it's wrong and offer an alternative view of liberal education is one in which you have, you accept certain truth claims as true and proceed from there. So again, ideological diversity is important because it is a means to pursue truth. And in that sense, some of the critical race theory texts should be taught in the classroom, but they cannot be taught if liberal education, I think, is to actually serve its, its best purpose as the fundamental premise from which to approach English, you know, gender studies, women's studies, sociology, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so what if I offer you a compromise, right? Uh, we put, you know, Charles Mill, uh, sorry, we put like, you know, Charles Mill on one end of the, the curriculum, we put Charles Murray on the other end of the curriculum, and we all agree that Robin DiAngelo gets banned, right? That'll be like our consensus. <laughs> well, this is, you know, left, right, this is a left, right, uh, I think, um, you know, unity ticket is Robin D'Angelo's, you know, a grifter. That's bipartisanship yeah. right there, yeah. Yeah, yeah so there we go. We, we can agree on that. Uh, anyway, I have more questions about this, but we'll move on. So go ahead. Yeah, no, so I want to, I mean, I want to, I want to ask about this because I, re I read your piece. I thought it was super interesting and, and, and well, or beautifully written. And, and I really enjoyed, uh, you know, you bringing up things uh, like bringing us back to uh, William F. Buckley Jr. And, and some of those thinkers. Um, you know, I think one of the issues that I probably had with the piece is it kind of felt like a lot of your critique of academic freedom was premised on this idea uh, on a certain conception of neutrality. Right. So, like, I definitely don't contest that there was this idea of academic freedom as like, OK, we have to be neutral. But I feel like you were very quick to conflate that with relativism. And I feel like those two things are actually like not the same thing at all. <laughs> so, like, let me kind of give you my best shot of like what I think 
like a steel manned account of what really like like the attempt at academic neutrality is and why I don't exactly think it's like denying that there's truth. Right. So um, there is obviously some philosophy that like tries to deny truth. But I think like the importance of kind of like an academic freedom that's aiming at neutrality is that like there's a lot of ideas, especially when it comes to morality or society that are like really complicated and you're going to find reasonable arguments on both sides. Like things are always at least contestable from some angles. So like, you know, so basically like the idea is I think academic freedom is important because um, we have to allow ideas um, to be contestable, right? Like, so we must, I think the enemy of academic inquiry is like dogmatism. And I think the idea is, well, there has to always be space to be like, well, let's undermine this idea and see what happens. Because I think otherwise we don't really understand why we believe the things that we believe. And I do, and I think that this approach that is always open, undermining or questioning whatever values or ideas we have is not actually a relativism. And, and I don't think that it's believing that there's no truth. If anything, it's actually acknowledging the fundamental truth that as human beings, we're, we are flawed. We're partial human beings. We have like limited cognitive capacities. We can't understand the complete truth. We're, we're liable to make mistakes. Therefore, we have to always be open to contesting and undermining ideas because otherwise we're going to fall into dogmatism. It's really about acknowledging the truth of human fallibility. It's not saying that there's no truth and that everything is relative. And I wonder how, how you would respond or if you would agree with that. Just as a quick follow up to that, uh, I think A, that you're wrong, that we can't know everything. I follow Kanye <laughs> on Twitter uh, and it's pretty clear that, you know, he's mastered a lot of things that we haven't. But my, my actual follow up yeah, is just to kind of compliment that. Uh, I agree with what you're saying, Victor. And I do agree, Nate, that there is a kind of cheesy... I'll just use the puristic term, postmodern kind of relativism uh, that I've been on record as saying I really don't like at all. Yeah, neither uh, of us like that. But, but there is a kind of Socratic skepticism uh, that has deep roots within the Western tradition or the European tradition, however you want to frame it, and for that matter, Islam as well, uh, that clearly is not relativistic uh, in the sense that it's committed to the idea that there is an ideal of truth out there. It would just deny that we've accessed it yet uh, or that we ever necessarily could ever get that uh, yeah, yeah, in totality. Exactly. All we can do is try to approach it as quickly as possible. I agree with you up into that last point because I think okay. that like, it is liberal education to a certain extent, is, it's necessary to have a conception of truth that is knowable. Um, but I, I think like the, the dichotomy that you're setting up, Matt, gets to more or less what I was going to say to, to answer Victor's question, which is that what you're saying, Victor, about uh, undermining sort of orthodoxies and dogmas as a way to try to understand better what we think is true exactly is liberal education right but yeah. the 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 second part of that question is the important you know subsequent follow up to the first part of that question and the problem with uh, a lot of education today is that it begins at the its its objective is just to undermine everything period right that is the end right i think a long time ago when I went on this podcast, Matt, I think you used the phrase trashing, right? That's a, a you know, a, a... Yeah, which I'm still opposed to. It's from uh, Critical Legal Studies. Uh, there was a seminal article put forward in the 1980s where people, uh, critical legal theorists were rebutting people like me who say we need constructive visions of morality and truth. Uh, and they said, we don't need that. All we need to do is trash things. And that was the name of the article. They're pretty open about it, uh, in the, their, their conception of pedagogy, right? Which is just to deconstruct everything. Right. That is the, the goal of pedagogy, because that's how you sort of make students revolutionary subjects. Uh, I obviously disagree as a conservative. Uh, I think that the goal of education is to teach people a how to think. Certainly, that's important, but also how to understand things that are eternally, eternally and permanently true um, and to better understand themselves and their relationships to one another. Right. Like there is a constructive end to uh, liberal education. Liberal education should not be deconstructive. It doesn't mean that deconstruction has an element of uh, usefulness and utility in the constructive end, but it is not an end in and of itself. And so again, like these are these are sort of two visions of academic freedom that we're talking about. Uh, and Victor, you're absolutely right that uh, the the academic freedom that vigorously challenges orthodoxy and dogma uh, is is a really important way to actually access. The things that are true that I think liberal education should be transmitting to, to students and to generations. Uh, but that is different than when old dogmas are sort of deconstructed and the old sort of 
structure and order of the university is gone, new ones inevitably spring up. And in many ways, those ones are worse and less conducive to academic freedom than the old ones were. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I certainly uh, am sympathetic and, you know, to like the concern about like new kind of like left wing dogmas appearing on campuses. And, you know, I, I, I can even just tell you like a quick little anecdote that um, I, I TA a class uh, like like it's kind of like the great thinkers in political thought, you know, from like Plato to John Locke. And, you know, r recently we, we've been doing a version where we've been including more non-Western figures on on the syllabus, right? Which I don't necessarily think in principle is bad. In fact, it was really interesting to include Buddhism, for example. I thought that was like a really interesting, good inclusion. And, and then we did like Canadian indigenous thought. And like, that's interesting to have. But like the problem that I had was like, it felt like we, we had to treat it with kid, kid gloves because like there weren't like robust arguments. But then of course you get to Plato and you know, the, the gloves are off, right? It's like everyone's saying like why he's wrong and like why this conception of justice makes no sense. And like you can say anything. But then when it came to like the, you know, indigenous thought or some of these other ones, um, it did just feel like as pedagogically, I had to be like more careful because we were trying to like, and that to me is, is not the spirit of a liberal education, not the spirit of, so to me, but I will say, like, I still do feel like um, in your piece, at least, like uh, I did feel like there was a bit of a conflation with neutrality because it seems like when, when I heard you answer, like you, you, you do think that a certain kind of neutrality is important insofar as we want to be able to leave the door open. But then, you know, I think we all agree that we might be against uh, certain like do like so dogmas emerging. Right. I think the problem with you know, the left on campuses, there are it does seem like there's these new dogmas and it seems like you're in favor of challenging them. But but it's unclear to me how like the, like the, the perspective from which you want to challenge it from is either a, di a different dogma or if it is actually kind of like, no, we have to have an open dialogue about these things, because sometimes you appeal to certain kinds of um, values, I guess, which to me are like the ultimate things that kind of need to be challenged and not necessarily challenged in the negative way, but like challenged in the sense of like, well, what does this mean? So like you say the values of the West, you say like virtue, like, uh, you know, um, beauty, like these are very contestable concepts, right? That need to be, um, I don't want to say, I mean, deconstruction, by the way, is not always so bad. I think it's interesting, even though I don't agree with Derrida on, on, on some of the, some of the issues. But like there is value in really like being like, OK, well, what do we even mean when we say those things? Because I think just like defending them by name easily risks becoming another kind of dogma. Right. So and, and, and that's sort of what I was trying to get at, I guess, is like, for example, when you are choosing what to put on a syllabus, values, judgments and questions are inevitable. Right, because you can't put every single thing that's ever been written on a syllabus. Your poor students <laughs> would, uh, would would struggle with that, I'm sure. Uh, well, I've tried. So, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yeah, right. So the again, like that's where I think the sort of common carrier or neutrality or however you want to put it view of academic freedom. It's not just wrong; it's actually just a fantasy. It does not exist, at least in the way that it is presented uh, often uh, by by some of these sort of uh, proponents of this new values, neutral academic freedom. So uh, again, to, to your point, Victor, I think you, you were saying that it felt like I was arguing in, a, in favor of a certain kind of neutrality. I, I understand what you're saying, but I don't think I wouldn't use the word neutrality because I actually think your example of the class that you were teaching where it was expected that you treat Plato and Canadian indigenous thinkers as sort of equally valid is a perfect example of exactly the, the sort of framework that I'm criticizing when it comes to this neutral conception of academic freedom, because they're not the same thing, right? Actually, you know, and this is not to disrespect. Well, actually, what's it's interesting too, is that like, I would, my problem was actually that we weren't treating them the same, that we actually had to treat the indigenous thought with kid gloves, right? Like, because we, we and, right. And, but, but the, the fact that you shouldn't treat them the same assumes certain basic some assumptions about values and about truth and about a hierarchy yes, of, yeah. you know, sort of intellectual. Um, uh, yeah, I think would imply that there's a kind of, we're supposed to treat these as kind of having an egalitarian status in terms of how they're taught, uh, but not necessarily um, in terms of how they're dealt with, uh, in part because if you treat them both, because in a certain sense, if you're critical of one uh, doctrine and it comes from a marginalized community, right, then it's perceived as 
undermining uh, the validity of that viewpoint in a way that reinforces or retrenches social structures of power. Right. So what I'm calling for essentially is just to recognize the fact that values judgments are inevitable and are a an aspect of, well, just in general human life, but in this context um, of liberal education and of teaching and of learning and of, you know, discussion of ideas and to not be scared of that, to not shy away from it, right? Like there's this sense, and again, this is particularly potent on, in some circles of academic thinking on the right, which is who I was criticizing in my essay. Uh, there is a sense that we shouldn't make value judgments or that that's wrong, or that's not the right way to do liberal education. I mean, uh, one of the most damning um, quotes that I quoted in my piece was from David Horowitz, who's a sort of neoconservative thinker. And I, I, I'd have to pull up the quote exactly, but he's saying, you know, teachers should never impose their views on students to do so is not education, but indoctrination, right? And it's like, well, okay, yeah, you shouldn't impose your views to a certain extent, right? Like you shouldn't threaten students to give them a bad grade if they say something you disagree with. But to a certain extent, what is teaching other than the transmission of values, right? Teachers are not robots. Students are not robots. We're not sort of, uh, per, you know, computer codes. We believe things, actually. And it's okay to believe things. It's actually good to believe things. Uh, and it's okay to sort of be clear about what you believe and actually to teach people to a certain extent to believe things that are good, right? I'm okay with teaching that murder and pedophilia is bad, right? I don't think that we have to sort of, uh, you know, teach morality in a way where, uh, arguments for genocide are treated as this is an extreme example, obviously, but uh, just sure. you know, to, to, to absurd, to, where arguments for genocide are treated as equally valid to arguments against genocide. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't read. I don't, I don't know if, if there's anyone that people read who argue for genocide, but like that doesn't mean that you shouldn't read those ideas and consider them in trying to get to uh, the truth. But yeah, no, totally. Again, the, the goal of teaching that is to teach students that genocide is wrong. I, I okay. I, I I see what you're saying, and like I know. I think we want to move on to some more questions since we have like limited time. I will just say like I agree with you about the values thing. Like I think it's impossible to avoid values. But I think what maybe I've been trying to get at as we've been as you've been talking is like I think the value should really be something about like epistemology, like like an epistemological modesty, like the fact that human beings are fallible. We don't have the answers, and the university is a place to try to figure out and acknowledge our weakness as humans because these things are open as opposed to, and I think the danger is like epistemological confidence. Like, and I think that I, and I worry about being like, well, the university is somewhere to teach, you know, the uh, certain values, you know, there is a philosopher, by the way, you should look him up, Stephen Kirshner, who, uh, who there's a lot of controversy around him because he, he has all these crazy arguments because he's testing the limits of our moral intuitions. He has like arguments like a liberal defense of like slavery. He has like, a, you know, he has uh, articles even about like like child adult sex and the morality. And like he's just testing our moral intuitions. And I think to me that is like in the greatest spirit of philosophical like kind of um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like like gadfly, you know, just like trying to question us and be like, well, are your intuitions? Do they make sense in every case? Yeah. Uh, just really, really quickly. I agree with epistemologic. Uh, epistemic modesty. humility, modesty, epistemic humility, humility modesty. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Uh, humility uh, is probably a better word, actually. But it's it is it is, and and Matt knows I'm a, I wrote my thesis on this uh, sort of heterodox political theorist Michael Oakeshott, who was oh, yeah. very much uh, um, very much in, in favor of this. The point is just that those those values, while important, exist up to a point, right? And recognizing their limits is just as important as recognizing their importance. Fair. See, that's an interesting point you bring up, though, because uh, I would argue that actually one of the features of American conservatism that you don't necessarily find in the more liberal versions of conservatism you find in the uh, English tradition, for example, uh, is what Russell Kirk said, this conviction that there has to be a transcendent or eternal order to which society is intended to conform. Uh, now, you can see elements of that in Burke, and Kirk was aware of this, right? But one of the things that you do find in the more skeptical variants of Anglo-conservatism, at least in some moments, is rejection of the idea that we could ever know such a transcendent order. Uh, and so there's more of a reliance on very human things like tradition, for example, uh, in order to settle these kinds of questions rather than appeal to something like God. Uh, You're saying you think American conservatism is more reliant on tradition than European strains? That's, to me, that seems... No, like no, 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 no. What I'm saying is Anglo-conservatism uh, is more reliant on traditionalism uh, than American strains of conservatism, right? Where I, I do think that there's this belief uh, following somebody like Kirk that there has to exist a transcendent, that's his term, right? Moral order to which society is intended to conform. That's usually hierarchical, uh, even if, you know, everyone has their role to play in it. But that, that's a kind of 
philosophical question that I wanted to mince for another side. I think the most interesting stuff that you've done recently uh, has been making your case uh, for the emergence of these kind of new right thinkers. And, you know, they go by a lot of different names. No one's really sure what to label them, in part because it really is a very heterodox movement, right? You know, post-liberals, the new rights, national conservative, you know, you name it. There's a million different names for it now, right? Uh, and Integralists. Yeah, you know, monarchists, you know, <laughs> I, you find all kinds of wacky things out there, as you once good on the left, right? And in some ways, I do see this as a sign of the intellectual health of American conservatism and worldwide conservatism. Um, it's kind of refreshing in some ways, even from a kind of agonistic standpoint. But but I do think that it could sometimes be hard to pin down what exactly unifies all of these people beyond just a sometimes vaguely defined, sometimes more concretely defined antipathy towards neoliberalism uh, and the kind of woke culture that's associated with that. So can you give me your kind of two cents on what you think these movements are about and is there anything that unifies them beyond that? Oh, man, I'm going to give you a disappointing answer, which is uh, I don't think that necessarily anything unifies them uh, or that, uh, you know, anything has to necessarily unify them. Right. In general, it is just an explosion of, I guess, I mean, maybe this is the, the, the unifying factor. It's an it's, Yeah. Like I saw a meme the other day with one of those peppy people, unfortunately, and that's not to like lump you guys with them. But it, it was you know, typical where it says, I literally hate liberals in the American sense. Right. Uh, that's my politics. I have nothing else right now. A lot of these people do have more politics to them, but if you were to try to find like the unifying feature of a lot of it, it would probably be that. Well, I was just going to say it like, cause I think maybe this is my best guess at this, by the way, to just sort of take a stab at the answer. And I think maybe you kind of fit into this, Nate, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that I think there is a growing movement of conservatives who are actually much more open to more leftist economic policies but kind of like our right social. So like maybe that's the, because it does seem like a lot of these new rights are a lot more critical of capitalism and, and, and globalization than I think previous versions of American. Maybe you'll disagree, but. No, some definitely are, right? I mean, if you read some of what like sort of Mari's been writing recently, you know, in Compact, uh, he's, you know, quoting Marxists and talking about labor unions. And uh, I mean, who knows? Uh, Amari in particular has sort of remade himself ideologically like four times in the last decade. So I wouldn't be surprised oh, that's for sure. if he just becomes a Marxist again uh, in a couple of years. Uh, if you disagree with <laughs> Sorab, just wait five minutes. Um, and, uh, you know, you might agree with his next his next iteration. But I think the... Kind of like a Dragon Ball Z character, right? You know, if you don't like one version, you know, he's going to evolve into something else in a few minutes. You know? The intellectual version of, yeah, Dragon Ball Z. Um, I think if there is like a unifying characteristic, it's just a dissatisfaction with sort of, you know, the conservative orthodoxy, at least of the last few decades, some of the more radical thinkers, the conservative orthodoxy of American politics or just of America, right? I mean, the integralists are pretty open about not liking America. I'm not one of those people. Uh, and in some ways, you know, this is like, uh, I've been sort of associated in some ways with the new right, um, because I share a lot of their, their, their critiques or dissatisfaction with, with conservative orthodoxy. But I'm also, you know, I am, I am not willing to go as far as a lot of those thinkers. And, and this is why, to a certain extent, it's difficult to talk about this intellectual group or these intellectual strains because it really is such a heterodox, wide-ranging cohort of figures who have radically different ideas and are unified only really by certain basic criticisms of neoliberalism, you know, globalization, and sort of mainstream conservatism's participation in those developments, right? Like, to me, it's, it's, I, I share uh, some of their critiques of late stage capitalism, but I would never call myself an anti-capitalist, largely because I am equally, if not more skeptical of massive sprawling government bureaucracy. And I don't think, uh, you know, I think in, in some ways, the, so at least the sort of mainstream leftist solution to capitalism or to the excess of capitalism is bureaucratization, which is not something that I support. Uh, but I do think also, like, I, I don't share the sort of worship of the market. And I think that there is such a thing as a common good, and that to a certain extent, there are public goods that the government has an obligation to support to temper the sort of hard edges of capitalism. So I, I think I sent you guys a piece uh, yesterday about, you know, arguing in favor of really, really robust uh, ch you know, child support and, and, and family policy without a work requirement, right? Like this is one of the sort of elements of neoliberalism that I really do think is toxic, 
which is this idea that everyone is like a market actor, you know, homo economicus, and that those are, you know, the, the only sort of uh, value of the of, of, of humans, of citizens, uh, insofar as the government is concerned, is making sure that, you know, they, we maximize their labor force participation rate, which I think is totally wrong, right? So in that sense, you know, I'm, I'm with the leftist critics of both the Democratic and Republican Party orthodoxy, where they think that basically you're only deserving of being able to raise a child or at least having government support to raise a child if you're working or contributing to the economy, which I think is absolutely wrong. But I also think that decentralization is good. I, I don't share the sort of like Milton Friedman capitalist arguments for decentralization. I think there are better ways to argue in favor of things like limited governments. But insofar as I am skeptical of modern capitalism, it's more that I'm skeptical of its global form. And uh, it's, you know, the power of multinational corporations, which again, there's some crossover with leftists than I am of, you know, fully bought into sort of Marxist arguments about, uh, you know, the relationships between labor and capital and the direction of history, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I will say, I do think that there are some interesting conservative thinkers uh, who have started to lean on Marx, which is something I always thought they should, right? Uh, he has this wonderful quote where he talks about how Everything that is solid melts into air. Uh, you know, everything that is holy is profaned under capitalism. Uh, and James Matthew Wilson, uh, who is quite a good Roman Catholic uh, post-liberal, uh, invoked uh, exactly that kind of specter in a recent book he made, arguing for why it is that we should have a whole bunch of policies that I don't support. But at least, you know, there was a dialogue there that I was appreciative of. And that kind of brings me to a point, which is that one of the reasons I like you, Nate, is that uh, unlike a lot of the kind of new right uh, that aren't willing to put forward certain genuinely economic populist movement, uh, like positions or policies, uh, you do actually seem to have some wiggle room there, right? Uh, and that kind of puts you in a class of your own compared to somebody like, say, J.D. Vance, uh, who I've seen talk an awful lot about, you know, economic populism and elites and so on, but then doesn't support something like Medicare for all or minimum wage increases and so on. So what I wanted to ask you is how hard do you think it'll be to get the Republican Party, which you're a member of, or at least that you kind of broadly support, to move on some of these economic issues? And do you think it's possible that they actually will do so politically? Or is this just going to kind of be a, let's call it this, intellectual dream, rather like my dream of one day pushing the Democratic Party towards democratic socialism is probably never going to actually materialize? Again, I, th I think it really depends on the sort of policy that you're talking about, right? And how much that comports with uh, some conservative aims. Like to, to, to Vance's credit, whatever uh, else you think of him, you know, this is actually something he's been relatively consistent on throughout all of his sort of rhetorical iterations. And he, he's always been sort of a welfare state conservative in a way. Um, and that comes from his background, you know, in, in white working class Appalachia. Um, so I, I think, you know, I, I don't know exactly you know, what would happen if, what would, how J.D. Vance would, would vote if something like Medicare for all came up for, for a viable vote in Congress. Um, but he supported Medicare expansion on the state level. And I wouldn't be surprised if in coming years you saw more generous, particularly with family stuff in, uh, in the event that Roe versus Wade is overturned and you see abortion bans. Uh, I do think that there's more, more appetite in elite conservative circles, but there's a, there's a sort of pretty powerful relationship between conservative intellectuals and the Republican Party agenda um, uh, to support more expansive family policies. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if, if, at all if that included more expansive sort of uh, healthcare, welfare state policies. And I, I think a lot of leftists would be happily surprised uh, by, by a lot of the policies he was championing. Again, I no, no, no. I mean, I want to get rid of the family and replace it with like these polyamorous Wiccan communes, right? That's what we all aspire to. Yeah. Um, Yes, so some leftists maybe would be would be happy at least in the in the medium term before we get to the point where the state withers away and you know um, every man becomes a Plato. What was the Engels quote? Every man becomes a, a Marx. Um, uh, oh, it was uh, actually from the uh, like the Soviet Union, right? Trotsky, where he said, you know, every man will rise to the level of an Aristotle, go to a Marx. You know, right, right. Um, so intermediate step is uh, child tax credit. You know, <laughs> the, the final stage of state withering white. But the again, like I think the distinction, in my view, between a prudent, I would say, I mean, prudent, like a conservative approach to sort of family policy and welfare state. But I just think it's a prudent approach because I am a conservative. Um, and what I think some leftists approaches risk doing 
is your disposition towards centralized power, power and bureaucracy, right? So one point I was making in the, in the family policy piece I sent you is the difference between a child tax credit and you know, universal pre-K is that a child tax credit empowers families to spend more time with their kids and doesn't actually require that much growth of the sort of bureaucratic administrative state on the state or federal level, uh, whereas a federal childcare program would not empower families. It would just be, you know, I mean, it might make it easier for, for parents in, in some ways to, to cope with having children, but it would, it would be a centralized, uh, you know, centrally directed program. And I think stuff like that, you know, that is the sort of distinction where I am all for doing everything we can to support working families, but I want to do it in the most decentralized way. And that might be, you know, unsatisfying to, to some leftists who want more sort of radical transformation. But I think that has to be the way you do it if you're actually if you actually care about empowering working people in America. Okay. Um, so I have kind of one final question, and uh, I guess like a way of getting to it. I'm, I wonder, have you ever read like a George Lakoff? He had a book, Moral Politics, where he he's like this linguist. I don't know if you know him. I've heard of him. I, 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 I okay. guess I should have I've read his book. Oh, oh, it's I mean, it's all good. I, I he just I think he captures the difference between like kind of the conservative and, and, and left wing mindset pretty well. And he like or he argues that like you can understand the reasoning of conservatives versus li liberals in the American left wing sense around these metaphors that like. Uh, you know, liberals tend to be the, or the, about, uh, sorry, metaphors about the family. So he says conservatives, they have this vision. They understand politics through strict father morality, right? Where you have to like, like practice your, yeah, yeah. And, and then like, and like the, and then the liberals are like, are like nurturing mothers. So the reason I mention that is because I guess one thing that I always find difficult about some conservatives, and I'm, I'm kind of want to find out where you land on this is like, you know, uh, how do how does your conservatism balance, I guess, an idealist commitment to certain like moral truth with like policy effectiveness? So when, what I mean by that is like, I think there are a lot of policies that maybe seem morally righteous or correct from a conservative perspective, but are actually demonstrably like ineffective as policy agendas. And I think one of them, for example, like banning abortion, drug prohibition, criminalization doesn't make America safer. It's actually a complete fucking disaster. Sorry for <laughs> dropping the F-bomb. I mean, these things, there's no evidence to say that they make um, society safer. And on criminalization, I mean, you can look at a country like Norway that has, you know, a prison system where it's a collaborative envir environment with uh, with with the prison guards. They, the, the goal of their prison system is to emulate the outside world as much as they can as the, as the uh, inside world. So that, that way, when they leave, hold on, <laughs> no, no, I used to joke to Marion literally that if we ever uh, didn't make enough money, I'll just go commit a crime in Norway and, you know, wind up yeah, in jail so, there. So anyway, and like the point is like when they change their prison system, the recidivism rate went way down, right? Like like people don't recommit there anymore because they're actually like training how to how to exist in society. But I think on a strict father morality, right, the reason I brought that up is I think it sounds bad because it's like, no, these people need to be punished, right? They've done something wrong. So I guess like my question is like in your conservative, how committed is it to kind of like it doesn't matter what the evidence shows because this is just right versus policy effectiveness where what's actually going to make our society what's going to meet our policy goals right like banning abortion abortions are still going to happen right people are still going to use drugs i think we should have safe injection sites because there's a lot of evidence to say that those kinds of things work so where do you land on that kind of uh that kind of uh way of thinking I, i'd probably contest a couple premises i think the sort of um I don't know if, if the writer that you're citing, I've heard this, this framework before. I don't know if the writer you're citing is, is on the left, uh, but I think the sort of strict father versus nurturing mother. Um, yeah, we don't, we can, we can throw that aside if you want. Uh, like it's one, conservatives do believe in order, right? Yeah. But one of the reasons that we believe in order is because actually we think the outcomes for society are better and the outcomes for society when you have a disordered society are disastrous, right? Like the actual material effects for people um, are worse, right? So I think the, the idea that it's that the conservatives are arguing for certain policies out of just a sense that they're abstractly right with no concern for how it affects people uh, isn't true, right? Like I actually think that what we believe is true and moral has to do with the effects of those policies on society. So I mean, to a certain extent, it's true, and I this is I think true to a certain extent of policymakers on both the left and the right that you have to have policies that reflect a principle of justice. So if you believe that abortion is the taking of an innocent human life, 
like I do, to a certain extent, murder can't be legal, right? Just just because murders are still going to happen, say, I mean, take the take abortion out of it, right? Uh, just because someone might murder a 12-year-old girl, uh, even if you ban the murder of 12-year-old girls, you still, I think most of us would agree that the murder of 12-year-old girls should be banned because to a certain because if, if you don't, then then it's anarchy. Right? Well, I think I mean, I think that there's reason to think that 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 that's actually meeting some of its policy goals, like like to, to lessen. It's just that there's certain other maybe I mean, maybe abortion. Weren't you just, just saying that like from, criminalization from what I've seen? No, work? well, from what I've seen from the from the evidence, it's like the number of abortions has actually gone down since Roe v. Wade. Not up. Well, that's because people okay, are having so, less. That's because people well, are having so, less sex. So, I mean, babies. potentially, but like, what about drug prohibition or like, um, or the other example of like criminalization, like in, like mass incarceration, right? Like that just doesn't work. I mean, I mean, crime like hasn't gone down as a result of like like. There's other, I guess. Or how open are you to these other policy approaches? Well, so I, we can. I think a debate about criminal justice and criminalization is probably you know the subject big, of the yeah. entire entire of the podcast. But sure. I think. Uh, there's also a distinction between, you know, drug laws and the number of police that you have on the streets. So there is an enormous amount of sociological and statistical and criminological data that more police actually does reduce crime. That when you have more police on the ground, it reduces crime. And this is not just a right wing thing. I mean, you can go read um, who's the Vox writer. He's totally slipping my mind. Matthew Glacius. Ezra Klein. Right? Oh, Matthew. Uh, Matthew Matt Iglesias yeah. has written uh, at length uh, advocating for more police during you know during BLM 2020. He wrote some you know he wrote in favor of sort of uh, some criminal justice reforms, some criminalization reforms, but also putting a heck of a lot more cops on the ground because that is one of the most time proven, tried and true solutions to reducing crime. So when you talk about something like the criminal justice system, again, like you have to sort of drill down into the details of what you're talking about. Yeah, I'm talking about incarceration, putting people in prison. Right. So again, there are there are different scenarios in which different solutions work. I mean, this again, this is it sounds like a cop out or an unsatisfying answer, but like taking I think one basic conservative principle is that one size fits all solutions are not a way to govern a complex massive fair, you know what f- fair enough complex. it was probably too massive of a question to ask you especially at the end well, of, of i'll it. try i mean I'm, tr- I'm trying to give like a i'm trying to give an answer that doesn't sort of uh sound slippery or like a cop-out but the, the point is like outcomes do matter um so insofar as conservatives believe in order and a a sort of social policy that reflects order you do need a well-governed orderly society in which criminality is discouraged and therefore that people who engage in wanton criminality are punished for it. Uh, but I, I think the sort of the, this, this trope that you hear from some progressives, and I'm not saying that you're necessarily saying this, that uh, conservatives are interested in something like incarceration or criminalization just because we want to punish people out of sort of an abstract sense of strict father morality or whatever, is not actually uh, you know, what is reflected in most conservative policymakers and thinkers uh, that, that I know which is that these are good for society. And actually, frankly, that these are good for the, the least among us, right? Because the people who are hurt the most by wanton criminality and crime spikes are not well-to-do white people living in gated communities. It's the people in the communities where the most criminality happens. So that, again, that's, that is an outcome-based argument. It's not an argument yeah. from abstract principles. Yeah, I wish I hadn't brought up the lack cop. I feel like that was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but it doesn't. I mean, I think that's that's sort of that's less that it doesn't really matter no, no. how yeah, you yeah. frame it. The, the point is that it's not the, to a certain extent, abstract principle has to inform policy because you have to have an idea just like in the in the academy. You have to make values judgments. OK, that's very interesting. And I guess just one follow up. Um, so how would you define these eternal principles that you're talking about? Because, again, I think that's where a lot of the action really is. Uh, and I'll give you kind of two counter positions uh, in terms of arguing for that from a conservative standpoint. Uh, so you can find some people uh, who are in a broadly speaking Hegelian tradition, somebody like, for instance, Roger Scruton, who would argue that we can't appeal to any kind of transcendent moral ordering, uh, at least one of the sense that uh, one in the sense that, you know, the natural law theorists would want to uh, appeal to, because uh, we need to recognize that where the metaphysical action is in terms of determining these eternal principles are things like the lived histories and traditions of people. Uh, that's one argument. And then, of course, you have this very different kind of position. Leo Strauss is kind of an exemplar here. who would say that actually this historicism is really where everything went wrong, right? Uh, you know, his famous criticism of Burke, right? Uh, and what we need is a return to 
is something uh, like the vision of the world as a tr- maybe Strauss himself didn't say this, but a lot of Straussians do, right? Uh, the world is kind of bound by this transcendent order that we can understand by reason, uh, but it exceeds history, tradition, all those kind of things. Where would you be more sympathetic towards in terms of seeking these eternal principles? Right. So I'm not a full Straussian in that I think at least the sort of operationalized political views of a lot of Straussians that we can just go back to this uh, is naive because we, again, this is what I was sort of trying to get at earlier. We live in a modern world with modern political conditions uh, (laughs) and you're not, you are not going to get everyone to return, you know, in, in, in American political life to that way of thinking. But that does not mean that we shouldn't look to something like natural law, which I do believe in, okay. um, to as as a guide, right, in in approaching these these political questions. But again, it has to be mediated by by certain circumstances. So I, I do believe in natural law. I believe in a natural principle of justice. In that in that sense, I was I'm, I'm with Strauss. Uh, but I also understand that you have to think about these things pragmatically to an extent, and that means. To a certain extent, uh, compromising with the spirit of the age uh, in pursuit of higher of higher ends. Is that, I'm not sure. I mean, is that too abstract of an answer for you? I wasn't sure exactly what you were. No, no, we're, we're a philosophy podcast, right? And this is why I kind of want to end it on philosophy, right? Because in my, my you know, Paul Gottfried is uh, creepy now, but in the 1980s, he wrote a really good book uh, on the influence of Hegel. Uh, in... His dissertation uh, 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 advisor was, right? Marcusa? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, he, he's gone very far from that. Let's just put it that way. But like, you know, one of the interesting points that he made, again, is that there is this very strong Hegelian tradition uh, on the European continent. Right? I know this is getting really abstract, but I wanted to bring it back to theory, right? Uh, which emphasizes the idea that the Enlightenment has so damaged the idea that there is such a thing as natural law, God, transcendence, anything like that, that it just has to be abandoned, right? So to the extent that we are going to commit ourselves to conservative principles, um, we need to commit ourselves to historicizing uh, our approach to those principles, right? Uh, and obviously you see this very strong pushback against this from the natural law tradition embodied by people like Strauss, but I would also argue embodied by people like the Catholic integralists, embodied by people uh, even like classical liberals, right? All of whom are committed to some vision of natural law. And this is where I see a lot of interesting stuff happening in the higher echelons of conservative thinking um, from the 1980s, because there are still these debates that are going on. Uh, and I just was kind of curious to see which direction you were moving in. So that's why I decided to end on that. And also because it's a philosophy podcast. So we need to have some philosophy there. Perfect. Yeah. I, I would just say really quickly that I think, um, if you believe that natural law is true, as I do, it doesn't stop being true just because the political circumstances have changed. Right. So again, to a certain extent, uh, engaging with a politics that requires perhaps solutions that acknowledge the uh, preeminence of the historicized or historicist view um, in the way that we think about politics is important, but to depart from what is true is never a good idea because the truth is actually pretty helpful in informing uh, the way that you think about politics. So natural law is still true. I think its view of the human person and our relationships to one another is true. Um, and that actually still has useful things to tell us about modern political problems, even if political life has departed uh, from anything connected to directly, you know, natural law thinking. Perfect. Okay, everybody. So thank you very much, Nate, for coming on. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, and it's great to have uh, another perspective. Uh, yeah, not coming from me. So uh, when it comes to the political right. So thank you very much. And we hope to have you on again soon. Yeah, that was fun. Anytime. Cool.